you're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. You're listening to episode three of Messy Jesus Business. I've been blogging at Messy Jesus Business since 2010. Messy Jesus Business, the blog, and now the podcast, explores how disciples of Jesus Christ experience the mess of radical gospel living. While we struggle for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. Now, on to our guest. A few weeks ago, on May 12th, I interviewed Hannah Bowman, the founder of Christians for the Abolition of Prisons. I have worked with Hannah for about two years on writing projects, and I have been fascinated with her other work on prison abolition for, for that entire time. As, as you'll he- hear in the interview, I struggled to put my mind around Hannah's belief that prisons shouldn't exist. Yet, she is convincing, and I l- learn a lot from her about how Christian theology invites, demands this conviction. In addition to working on prison abolition, Hannah Bowman is a literary agent at Le- Lisa Dawson Associates, a graduate student in theology at Mount St. Mary's University, Los Angeles, a volunteer chaplain in the LA County jails, and the coordinator for the pilot circle for a new Circles of Support and Accountability reentry program in LA. She's brilliant, and I suspect you also will be enlightened. Together, we discussed how the prison system fails to help people, how belief in Jesus demands freedom, how institutions fail us, and the messiness of continual conversion. One note, I'm airing this episode after the evil murder of George Floyd by a white police officer in Minneapolis and during the peaceful Black Lives Matter protests throughout the United States and world. Although Hannah and I briefly touch on systemic racism in our conversation, it's not central to it. Yet, I'm quite confident that Hannah would agree that prison abolition is vital to rebuilding a society based on racial equity. Hannah, hi, welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Thank you, I'm really glad to be here. Great. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I have some questions prepared, and before we get into them, I just want to 
do a true confessions uh, to you. <laughs> Before I met you and we started working together, I never heard of prison abolition. Most people haven't. Yeah, okay. So, um, and I, I guess I consider myself, you know, a fairly woke Christian and have been involved in a lot of social justice advocacy for years. And um, yet, I, when I heard the phrase prison abolition through you, it was like a, a very confusing thing. And I didn't know even how to wrap my brain around it. And I started reading some of your work, and, you know, studied your website, Christians for the Abolition of Prisons. And I just started to think about how logical it is yet it's so radical right so anyway that's all to introduce <laughs> this conversation and and i kind of want to dive into how you got involved uh so that's the first question how did you yeah first become involved in prison work in general and then um the advocacy for the abolition of prisons yeah well so this is i'm so glad to hear your story too because that's, it's very um, similar to this sort of epiphany I had. And honestly, that's like what I'm trying to do with my work is to encourage people to have that epiphany. Um, so I, I started doing prison work pretty early on. So I was, I was um, baptized in college. And shortly after that, I got, I was going to a college chaplaincy, which had a Bible study at a, a girl's juvenile detention center. And I said, oh, this is a thing I can do that will be meaningful. And I went out there and I basically fell in love with the work right away. And so basically the whole time I was in college for about three years there, I was, I was doing that two or three years, I was going every week out and we would go and have a Bible study with three or four girls who were, you know, at that time I was 20 or 21 and they were mostly 14 or 15. Um, and just like the best theologians you'll ever meet, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, so I did that in college and then I got, you know, distracted by the ways of the world. I graduated, I got married, I, I started a job. I kind of moved away from the work for a while and about 2014 really felt called back to it in ways that were very, you know, very scary because I think prison work and you, like you do jail ministry, it, it really, it takes your entire presence, right? And, um, and jails and prisons are scary places. They're places that I would describe as demonic because they're designed you know, to oppress human beings. And so even now, and I've been now, I've, um, I've been a volunteer chaplain in the LA County jails now for four years. And even now I find that I have, you know, tremendous anxiety, not about my safety, but about whenever I go in there about kind of contending with those powers and institutions. And so, um, so it's, you know, it, it is difficult, I think, to, to bring yourself to face the, the enormity of the, the system. So I got really interested in that um, around five years ago and basically started reading everything I could. And I had been, you know, following criminal justice reform and sort of prison ministry in the meantime, but I started really getting deeply into everything I could, like everything I could learn about that and, and came across this idea of prison abolition. And the thing that really radicalized me was a book by um, actually another one of my clients now, Maya Shenwar, who is a journalist who writes about prison abolition. And she wrote this beautiful book, Locked Down, Locked Out. And it's about prison abolition. And it tells many people's stories, including the story of her sister, um, who was incarcerated and had a baby while incarcerated. And um, 
So she ties her personal story into, you know, her journalistic reporting. And what that book did is she presents, you know, here is why prisons don't work. And here is how some of the things people are doing to deal with harm in ways that are restorative, in ways that do not rely on prisons, in ways that are really an abolitionist framing. And I read this book, I was sitting on Amtrak in like darkest Connecticut coming out of New York. Hmm. And I read this book on the train and I had this just epiphany, you know, this, oh, all this time I've been trying to say, well, prisons are terrible, but we can make them better. Well, prisons are terrible, but I guess we have to have them. And suddenly it was this tremendously liberating thing to say, oh, I guess I'm a prison abolitionist. I guess wow. I just don't think we have to do this, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. Whoa, it never occurred to me that as a serious person, I could say, well, we don't have to have prisons, but you can. And so it right. was this tremendously liberating epiphany for me. And so a big part of my work is that I want other people to have that experience, right? Because once you change, once you have this abolitionist paradigm shift, once you say, oh, policing and prisons and violence and locking people up don't have to be how we react to, to situations, to difficult situations, to violence or to harm. Once you have that epiphany, it just, the paradigm shift changes everything about how you think about everything. You know, I mean, it changes, it makes it almost difficult to talk to people about politics because the framework <laughs> suddenly so different, right? It's like, well, oh, do we want to talk about abortion? Well, I've got to start with the fact that I'm a prison abolitionist, right? Yeah. We want to talk about how do you raise your children and what do we do, you know, to teach our children? And well, we have to start with all these ways in which our imaginations are caught in this carceral system, mm -hmm. right? And so it kind of has affected everything about how I view my faith and how I view my life and, you know, how we live together in society. Mm. And what's interesting to me is that, you know, as you said, I think even pretty like woke social justice, white Christians haven't had that experience. Mm. Um, you know, that kind of like road to Damascus moment, right? Because, yeah. Because I know so many people who say, oh, well, you know, but I, I, I'm not a prison abolitionist, but I think we have to reform our prisons or, you know, but we want them to be better. You look at like the statements of the, the Catholic Church, which are pretty good on restorative justice, but are not quite willing to go there. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, it's confusing to me and interesting that there's this real blind spot, I think, particularly among white Christians hmm. um, who are otherwise very, very progressive, but just get hung up on this you know, but no, but we have to maintain that. We have to keep that last vestige of violence and control mm. and we don't want to let go of it because you're right. It is a really radical thing. It's, mm -hmm. it's liberating because it's this radically liberated thing to say, oh no, I don't have to hold on to that. I don't have to keep holding on to this concept of a prison for that one person I hate. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's really, I mean, it's just, I'm, I don't know if I'm yet at the epiphany. Like, I think I'm in the place of struggle of like really trying to, to wrap my brain around it still, because it is, it's such a drastic, I'll try to, I'll read the book. That'll probably help. But, <laughs> yeah. It makes it feel possible. The thing, yeah. and there are a number of books and there's a lot of writing about this, but what was really exciting to me was the idea that it makes it feel possible. The other mm -hmm. book that's great is um, Danielle Sered's book, um, Until We Reckon. And she runs Common Justice, which is a restorative justice diversion program in New York for violent crimes. And so what, what really made that, made it click for me was the idea that there were other things we could do, mm -hmm. right? That it didn't, that it's not, and I think this is a misconception about prison abolition is that it's just, 
oh, well, we can't do anything about violence, right? We can't do anything about crime and harm. We just, you know, we can't make it worse by locking people up, but we can't do anything to stop it. When, of course, that's not what it is. It's about, um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about how it's about, it's not just about tearing down the structures, although there is opposition to these carceral structures in the abolitionist perspective, but it's also about building a society that doesn't need prisons, that doesn't have to rely on prisons as a solution, right? Yeah. It's about, you know, it's about saying, what else can we do? And that's actually where I am like most interested in it Mm. because I'm not like, I'm not an in the streets radical activist. I'm just not, I'm, I'm too, Mm. you know, (laughs) (laughs) it's not my style. Um, I really respect people who can do that, but I'm not that confrontational. And so for me, the idea that, oh, we can do concrete things towards abolition by doing these things that are not necessarily that radical, but freeing our imagination to understand them in a radical way, mm. right? So like, so like one example is something I'm working on very much um, at the moment is we're trying to get started a circles of support and accountability program in LA, which doesn't have one. And this is a re-entry model, which is particularly aimed at people who have committed serious violent sex crimes. And so it's, um, and basically the model is literally you get four volunteers and you have a circle and you meet weekly and you work on goals and targets and social support and social accountability and what's astonishing you know this is such a simple intervention right it mm-hmm. is literally just a a weekly group that meets that provides support with the basic tasks of daily living and pro-social sort of um, development and what they found in studies of these programs is that and these these programs are for you know people who are have have committed very serious violent crimes and what they found is that in that population it reduces the risk of of um, felony reconviction by like 85%. Amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, and it makes a lot of sense because I mean, everything I know about people (laughs) that end up becoming incarcerated is it's because there's, they don't have strong, strong support systems. Right. Like us, people of privilege do. And um, I mean, I can't imagine ending up in, in my situation, because I'm such a person of so much privilege that I would end up incarcerated unless it was something I chose. And so many people are incarcerated simply because they don't have the supports. Yeah. So right. and even, you know, even rich people, but there's always something exactly. There's always something there where it's, it's about those supports in relationships. Right. And, and the reason I bring up that example is because that is abolitionist work. Like that, what, you know, that this is saying, hey, we can take pedophiles and child molesters and we can have something where we are supporting them in the community and it is more effective hmm. than hmm. all in terms of preventing further harm than all of our attempts to lock them up and throw away the key are. Yeah. Right? That's why, and that's abolitionist. That's, that's what we do if we want to make prisons obsolete, which is what Angela Davis says, right? That's what we do if we want prison abolition is we say, oh, that's how we respond to this harm. And so for me, the reason, you know, the reason to say we have to do this as abolitionist, we have to do this saying, talking about prison abolition and not just reform is because fundamentally prisons are 
not broken, they're designed to do something that is wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And so the way I always put it is that prisons are designed to punish and to banish. And that's not actually going to solve the problem, mm -hmm. right? I mean, they're designed to be retributive, which is why they can't rehabilitate because the impulse to be punitive and to be harsh is always going to conflict with the impulse to provide resources towards re rehabilitation. And they're designed to banish. They're designed to cut people off from relationships when, in fact, everything we know about preventing recidivism, about making amends, is reliant on close relationships, whether that's in something like a circle that you've you know, built for that purpose, or whether it's relationships with your family and with your children, right? The thing that is the biggest predictor of people wanting to overcome addiction, overcome you know, whatever the, the harm is that they've done and be rehabilitated, the thing that's the strongest predictor of that is their relationship with their children. That's mm -hmm. why they want to get out and, you know, do better. Mm -hmm. And yet we put people in prisons in these situations where they can't see their children. They yeah. can't be there for their children. Right now, they're, I think, basically nowhere in the country are their visits being allowed in person yeah. because of COVID. And so, you know, people are literally unable to see their children, the people for whom they want to be better, right? Mm -hmm. and so, so for me, that was the, the realization was that no matter how good you make your prisons, right? You can say, well, our prisons should be more like Norway's. And that would be better, for sure. Our prisons are uniquely uh, punitive and harsh. Awful. <laughs> They're awful. Evil, but, right. But, you yeah. know, no matter how good you make your prisons, the reality of a prison is that it's a wall that cuts you off and cuts off relationships. Mm -hmm. And so if you believe that the way you take responsibility for what you've done, the way you make amends, the way you become better, the way you repent is in the context of relationships, a prison is never going to encourage that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not designed to. Yeah. Well, it, I, I, my, my mind is going now to, and I'm thinking about the theology of it. I mean, mm -hmm. In our creed, we profess, in a way, uh, well, we profess our belief in the Trinity. We are, it's all about relationship with community to be a good Christian. We know that we need community support. Mm -hmm. So how can we expect people to develop and really grow into the people that God made them to be if we're cutting them off from the relationships and the supports that matter. Right. And it does happen because people build really meaningful communities inside prisons, right? Yeah. Like, I don't want to deny that, that, that people do, you know, either by going in for ministry or just by the community that is inside there, people, prisoners support each other. And right. so they build really beautiful communities, but we're not encouraging it. Right. And, mm -hmm. and it is, I think it is absolutely theological. And so then the other part of my kind of radicalization. Mm -hmm. After I had this sort of epiphany about, oh, I don't have to be holding on to this, this, this sinful desire to incarcerate people, right? Once I let go of that, um, I then began to realize how deeply this fit into kind of everything I already believed, right? And about what my faith is, because I really think, for me, prison abolition is really deeply rooted in the salvific work of Jesus. And, and that's not to say that all abolitionists would or should think that. I mean, most most abolitionism these days has come out of sort of the black Marxist tradition. And so there's not, which is, which is I think part of why it's not as popular in the white church. But part of what I'm doing with, with Christians for the abolition of prisons is it's very specifically theological work and it's theological work aimed at progressive white people, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not talking as much about 
very important things like the racial history of mass incarceration, like, you know, the, the ways in which our system is unjust in particularly racialized ways. What I'm actually more interested in doing is setting up a theological framework which is aimed at helping woke white Christians have this sort of epiphany and, and see their theology in this new and really liberationist light. Because for me, it is theological, you know, it is, we believe in this, we believe that God's justice occurs in community and that's all over the New Testament. It's all over the models of, of how the church works. It's all over, you know, our, our sacraments of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And yet we don't act that way when it comes to crime, right? Or we believe in, you know, atonement and however we, we understand that theologically, you know, we sort of believe that, that Jesus is the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And yet what are we doing still casting people out, mm -hmm. punishing them for those, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and we say we believe in the forgiveness of sins, but we don't act that way. Mm -hmm. um, it's like the no brainer that I had, I think, you know, back in I, I think it might have been middle school when I learned about the death penalty. And I was like, well, Jesus already died for their sins. Why would we kill them? That doesn't. Exactly. It's just like, that doesn't make sense. So I mean, you follow that logic. Yeah, right. Jesus already died for their sins. <laughs> yeah. So why are we still seeing retribution? Yeah. Something really profound. In, and I actually lean more than, you know, a lot of liberal Protestants don't like to lean on that sort of Jesus died for your sins. Um, although I think it's still prevalent in, in Catholic theology, but I really do lean on that because mm -hmm. I think it's really powerful to think, oh, Jesus died for all the sins of the world. And so we don't get to punish people anymore. Yeah. That's not necessary. It's right? not our job. Isn't it's that, it's not kind of, our job. It's, it's exciting. It's <laughs> finished. Yeah. Yeah. And there's something really powerful about that for me, about this idea that, no, the debt is paid and, you know, we are free. And so how do we live and how do we deal with harm, which is real, and with the real things we owe each other when we've done harm to each other, how do we deal with that and let it be shaped by the reality of atonement, right? Mm. So, and, and then there's also, you know, there's a whole... There, there's a whole lot of other theological resonances. There's some really interesting work that comes out of the Hebrew Bible as well and out of the, the Exodus and the, you know, the freeing of slaves and the freeing of prisoners and the Jubilee tradition that remembers that, which is the setting free of slaves and the, and the, the um, forgiving of debts every seven or 49 years. And so there's all these beautiful patterns which come back, which Jesus says, you know, when Jesus says, I come to, to set the prisoners free and to announce the year of the Lord's favor, he's drawing on this whole history of the Jubilee. And so there's, there's a lot of really beautiful typology that ties the Jubilee to the freeing of prisoners to, you know, the resurrection and the overcoming of death. Um, and then the other, the other place that I think is very interesting, um, and this is sort of my own theological interest, is, is Jesus' descent into hell. And what that says about prisons and sort of hell as the type of prison and Jesus coming to set the prisoners free. And, you know, especially in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, there are these really beautiful images of Jesus going down and pulling Adam and Eve out of, of hell. Mm -hmm. and so there's some really interesting um, interesting theology there. So I think mm. what I love about this work is 
on the one hand, I really think that I really think that prison abolition is an essential part of the gospel. I think if we don't, as long as we are saying, I want to hold on to this concept of the prison for that person I hate, we're not really going to understand the theology of Jesus. But I also think that, you know, prison abolition should be the work of the church. And again, that's not to say we get to take it over or to deny the work that others are doing, but it's to say, no, if we look seriously at what we believe, this is where it takes us. This is what it looks like, you know, in reality, in praxis. Um, yeah. So what do you say to the Christian who um, is thinking of all these counter arguments as they listen to you say all this and, or just, I mean, we live in a culture, our society is so fear-based mm -hmm. and we're not a loved-based society. <laughs> so that's where we go to and we're impacted by that. You know, it's kind of the social sin of fear blocks us from being compassionate. So what do you say to someone who's like thinking of every reason why they shouldn't agree with you right now? The first thing I say when somebody says, oh, well, I really support reforming prisons and we lock up way too many people, but we shouldn't abolish them, right? Mm -hmm. The first thing I say is, so who exactly is it that you think should be in prison and what should the prison look like, mm -hmm. right? Because I think that gets at two key points. And the first one is we, we sort of already touched on, which is this point that no matter how nice you make a prison, mm -hmm. it's always something which is going to be blocking and destroying relationships, mm -hmm. getting in the way of them. And so this idea of how do we do justice in community by strengthening the bonds between people, maybe not between people who have harmed each other, right? Because you can certainly set boundaries to protect yourself, but strengthening other community bonds rather than saying, we're going to banish you, you're not part of us. Um, the other part of it, this question of who do you think should be in there, is getting at the, at the idea of how does violence happen, right? What is a violent criminal? So one of the things that have, you see a lot is Christians and others who will say, well, we should let all the nonviolent criminals out, but keep the violent offenders locked up. But when you look at violent crime, which is most crime, which we can't let enough people out without uh, dealing with violent crime, mm -hmm. violence is contextual, right? People who have committed violent crimes, even serious violent crimes, are not necessarily dangerous anymore because they're older or anymore if you get them out of the gang or anymore outside of the context of a specific relationship or a specific conflict. So like one example that really shocked me is if you look at women who are in prison for murder, right? Mm -hmm. Almost all of them murdered abusive partners. Wow, right. And they were abused and then they fought back and then they go to prison for life for murder. Wow. And this happens all the time. You saw it with um, Centoya Brown, who was just released in Tennessee, who had been trafficked as a teenager and, and then shot um, the, the man she was with. Mm -hmm. You see it with all these, these examples of people who have basically, you know, are trying to, in some sense, protect themselves, right? And in a way that is wrong, <laughs> mm -hmm. but, um, but is also not what you think of when you think of violent crime, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so what, what I see is that when you, when you frame it that way, you come to this point that what people are really worried about is like serial killers and serial rapists. And those are hard questions. I'm not trying to say, mm -hmm. you know, this is messy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not trying to say, hey, this is easy. It's this, this is going to be easy work. But even when you look at those, those really hard cases of which there are not very many, 
right, of, in which it's not something you can prevent or address in some other way. The other thing I would say to people who are afraid and who, who think this isn't possible is that we know it's possible because it's being done, not at large scale, but people are doing it. So you look at some place like Common Justice, which deals specifically with violent crimes, and they do restorative justice processes for hate crimes. Hmm. And people come together and they, and it's not sentimental, it's not sappy, it's not necessarily forgiveness. It's, as they say, it's very pragmatic because survivors of violence want, what they want is for no one else to get hurt. And they know that most of the time, unless you send somebody off to prison for life, if you send them to prison, they're going to come out more harmed and more likely to hurt somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so what they want is practical steps. I want you to get anger management. I want you to get sensitivity training to overcome your racial biases. I want you to do this thing to make this up to me. I want you, you know, things that are not degrading and they have ground rules, but I want you to, you know, that there was somebody who was a victim in this program who was a victim of a, a hate crime on the subway. And she said, I want this person who did this to me to, to feel that, to sit with that every day, to be aware of it. And what they finally agreed was that, that the person who, who did it would not be allowed to take um, the subway for a year and would journal every day about what effect this had on them, right? To be wow. afraid of the space in the same way that the, the victim was. And so, you know, there are these creative possibilities which are not destructive, which are based in relationship, but which are dealing with even these, these heinous crimes. And even if you look at somebody like, you know, serial killers, because we have to talk about serial killers, um, there's been some really interesting work by James Gilligan, who's a psychiatrist in Massachusetts who works with, with serial killers, who talks about the fact that they were all terribly abused as children, the fact that they're driven by this profound sense of shame, and he lays out the logic of how their shame, their complete lack of self-love is what's driving them mm -hmm. to, to act out and commit these horrible crimes. And he says, you know, they're still humans, and once you see that motivation, is it easy to overcome that? Is it easy to address? No, of course it's not. But is it possible mm. to start addressing in relationship? Yes, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Or you look, and again, this is why this circles of support and accountability work is so important to me to get mm. going. Is It's very, it's not work that's done very often. Mm. Um, but if you look at this, we're talking about people who have committed multiple violent sex crimes, which is one of the, you know, the groups that people will say, well, we have to put them in prison. And yet you're getting outcomes that are as good as effective harm mm. as, as putting them in prison would be just by having a group of volunteers of everyday regular people who are meeting with them in a circle, right? Yeah. So the answer is there's other things we can do, even in these really hard cases. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you can say, yes, maybe there's a particular person and we have to restrain them. And and I I think you should I think it is perfectly ethical to use force to stop somebody from committing immediate harm, right? I am not saying let's send someone back out on the street so they can go back and hurt somebody who they plan to hurt. So you, to just be clear, uh, you do believe that jails should exist then for like short term? I don't believe that jails are designed to do that. Oh, okay. Um, I do believe that we have, we should have ways, you know, I do believe you can stop somebody physically from going out immediately to hurt somebody. Yeah. I, I believe that as soon as we systematize them into jails that you go into for committing crimes in the way that we have set it up, mm -hmm. it no longer 
serves that purpose, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think that when you think about restraint, you know, you think about if your child wants to go punch somebody and what are you going to do, right? Mm -hmm. And you're going to stop them. Or you think about the informal ways that people in communities have always stopped harm, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's by, you know, we're going to break up this fight by holding people apart, Mm -hmm. um, which I don't say as a light example. I think it's, it's exactly this kind of community and nonviolent justice we're talking about, or whether it's, hey, I, I know that, you know, my, my husband is abusive and he's coming back and I'm scared. And so all of your friends come over to your house to protect you. Yeah. You get there. And these are the sorts of, you know, community justice, um, uh, community accountability processes that people are doing anyway, right? If you look mm -hmm. at the work that people are doing, for example, who aren't able to call the police because they're illegal, you know, undocumented immigrants or because they're, you know, for whatever reason, they don't feel safe calling the police, they're already finding ways to, to do this, right? They're finding ways to say, no, you can't come back here. She's getting her stuff and moving out and we're going to make sure she's safe until she does. You're mm -hmm. finding this informal work that's already happening. If you look at the, you know, what happens, um, like among the, the gangs in LA and you look at like Father Greg Boyle's work with Homeboy and what you find is people who do gang intervention work are so often former gang members who mm -hmm. are who are coming and are saying, hey, let's work this out so nobody dies, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, so, so my point is that restraint can look like a lot of things and doesn't need to look like a jail. And yeah. as soon as we say, no, we have to lock you in a cage, we have to separate you from us in order to stop you from doing harm, I don't think that's the most effective way to do it. And I think we know that because I think when it comes to the people who we care the most about, if we want to stop them from doing harm, we do it in our relationships, not by locking them up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So really it's, what I'm hearing is the way to make this radical change that's so desperately needed and ultimately build the kingdom of God here on earth and honor the dignity, the God-given dignity of every single person that, I mean, we believe, we profess, especially in the Catholic Church. It's for the huge. sake of the common good. <laughs> right, right. For the sake of the common good. Okay, so if we're going to do all this, like, it's only what we need to be, do is be less institutional and we need to be more relational is, you know, and like, that's, that's, if we can rebuild a system that's actually community-based and how's the community take more ownership for their safety and for the protection of one another. Exactly. And it actually is, I mean, not, not to go all Catholic, but it actually is. <laughs> no, about, bring it. <laughs> it is about human dignity, right? Yeah, it is totally. And I would never want to put Jesus in a jail I mean, right. he, did, he did time Good Friday, but yeah. like, I, I, that was not his, his dignity that's being honored. He's there. He is there in our jails yeah. and prisons. There's, yeah. he's there with every one of the 2 million people in our jails and prisons. Yeah. And I don't, yeah. right. And I wouldn't want to put any person in the, in a jail because I love them because they're a child of God. And, and I if think I'm the, the reason them. I say, the reason I say it comes down to human dignity is that when we say, well, stopping this, you yeah. know, this serial killer from, from killing again, right? Like when we yeah. put it in that, what well, we have to, well, restraint has to look like a jail. What we're saying is I have to, the only form of restraint I can imagine is locking this person up in a jail because I can't imagine having a relationship with them. Mm. Yeah. I can't imagine saying to them, stop, I won't let you do this. Yeah. Right? And so all I can imagine is having somebody else deal with it, is having somebody else put them someplace else. I mean, it is fundamentally 
a non, it's fundamentally saying, I don't see you as a human person. Right. Because if I saw you right. as a human, I could have a reciprocal relationship with you. And I am not willing to have a, a relationship with you in which we can be mutually accountable to each other. Mm-hmm. I'm not willing to see you that way as, as an equal. And so all I can think of to stop you from doing harm is to push you away and lock you up. And to mm-hmm. do that is to, to not see somebody as a human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and yeah, I, everything I've experienced as a teacher and as a minister has taught me that people rise to the expectations that you give them. So Absolutely. if you see them as a good person and you help them to know that you genuinely believe they are good and they're made to be good, they be- start to behave that way. I mean, mostly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There are some people that might react, right. Cause they're not convinced them convinced or they don't trust you, but for the most part, it, that's yeah. my experience. Yeah. And yeah. And I've been asserted in challenging places. Okay. Yeah. So the, the last thing I want to talk about is how all this work. Um, well, I know it's messy. We've already talked about how it's messy work, but like, what is it teaching you about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? And like, what are some of the spiritual principles that you think you've learned in this work that, that are applicable to discipleship of all sorts? Yeah, I think, so I'm going to take the easy answer first and say <laughs> that has really affected my theology, right? Mm-hmm. Because now I see, and I think I've conveyed some of this, that, that abolition is so central to my theology that like, for example, and I've hinted at this, but like, I'm, I'm a universalist because I'm an abolitionist, right? Because mm. like, we don't put people in prisons and hell is a prison and Jesus is not going to put people in prison. It's just, you know, mm-hmm. um, this is just not, ultimately it's all, we're all going to be reconciled to God. Um, and so it's had a very profound effect on, on my theology because it's really inextricable. Um, because trying to make sense of a theology, and again, this was that epiphany, trying to make sense of a theology that allows for hell and allows for prisons just doesn't, it just doesn't click for me. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work, you know? And once I t- take that out, everything kind of falls into place. Um, but in terms of discipleship, I think the other thing, and this gets back to the messiness, is that it really is complicated and it's about listening, right? Mm. Which is not something I'm very good at. Um, I would much rather theologize than listen, but when you deal with this work, right, and when you're in the jail with people or you're looking at these complicated situations or you're looking at what are we going to do on a circle or how is this going to work, you have to deal with the, the, the messiness of people, right, and the fact that people... I think we have a tendency in prison ministry um, and prison reform and abolition and all these things to idealize prisoners a little bit. We like to say, oh, well, but people are really, they're just misunderstood and it's all because of circumstances and we can make things better. And the fact is, and I think it's really important that we keep this reality in mind that we all, we do terrible harm to each other, right? Mm -hmm. We all do. And, you know, people who are in prison have often committed really great harm. And so dealing with the messiness, and sometimes they really don't get why that's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes they do. And sometimes they have tremendous self-understanding, but just like any other people, sometimes it's not quite clear, right? Mm -hmm. And so it can be really difficult to do this work when you're dealing with what do you do with, you know, what the parole board calls lack of insight about mm. uh, 
um, about what, what they did or when you're dealing with, and I don't like that term because I don't like to use the terms of the system, but what do you do when you're dealing with people who don't know how to have empathy for other people? What do you do when you're dealing with people who really have always assumed that, you know, meeting their own needs is more important than anybody else's? Um, you know, what do you do with these these complicated because people when you actually encounter them it's never as neat as you think you might hmm. think oh well here's how jesus is present in the jails and here's how my theology of dealing with struggle is relevant to the jails and then you go into the jail and you hear people who say you know well the, the important thing about my faith is that god wants me to do better and he's going and he will be he will be with me as long as i turn my life around and repent and on the one hand you want to say no no god loves you anyway mm -hmm. it's not conditional but on the other hand you have to honor the reality of that truth that they have found for themselves mm. right and so so it's really complicated as soon as i started doing this work and i you know i write to prisoners i i uh have been going into the jail although obviously we can't right now with covid i'm trying to get into you know, some of this other work, but the more you get to know people, the more you realize that they're just people, right? Yeah. I always say people sure are people because we don't <laughs> want to say, we don't want to say there's good people and bad people. And like, I have, you know, I have a two-year-old and we're trying to avoid using the language of good guys and bad guys, right? Sure. There's not good people and good people and bad people. It's just people sure are people and yeah. people are, are, have the capacity to do really terrible things. And so, dealing with that messiness i think is important to discipleship because that's what you know that's what we have to do to live in community and if ultimately this is about how do we have communities that are strong enough to deal with these conflicts in a way that is open in a way that is mutually accountable in a way that doesn't need the restrictions of the state to nonetheless um honor the needs of victims and do justice and not try to cover it up and sweep it under the rug for the sake of the institution, mm -hmm. right? We're talking about how we do this. Um, we have to be ready to deal with the messiness. And it's not, we're gonna have a single restorative justice circle and everybody's going to kiss and make up. Right? Yeah, right, right, um, yeah. But it really is, you may never forgive and maybe restorative justice doesn't have to be about forgiving. Mm -hmm. and maybe Forgiving doesn't look like we ever want to be in the same space ever again, but it looks like how do we have a community that's big enough to have space for both of us? Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I think it's it to, to, to make those changes and to do it in a way that is responsible means that we have to keep listening because we have to be able to say, well, what am I hearing from survivors, right? What am I hearing from the people who have been harmed? What am I hearing from the people who are most affected by the situation? What am I hearing from the people who are poor? And mm. so it kind of gets to the, like the, the epistemological privilege of the poor, right? And mm. this listening to the marginalized pushes us, even if we're already like woke abolitionists, it still pushes us outside of our comfort zone. Mm. So there's a constant call to conversion and the spirit yeah. is inviting all of us, no matter who we are, to yeah. grow and to change and develop, yeah, to become more holy. Like that's a lovely way of putting it. <laughs> I would never use the language of a constant call to conversion, but that's lovely. <laughs> I, I'm a Franciscan. Oh, Hannah, this has been so fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, I love talking about this stuff. I think you've convinced me. <laughs> right, right. Welcome.
And I'm, and I'm glad to be a partner with you in the ministry of it all. I invite you to join me in this contemplative moment. In light of the conversation with Hannah Bowman about prison abolition and the urgent need for racial justice throughout the United States, I'm going to read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. As you listen to the passage, I invite you to imagine that you are there, that you are in the scene. What does it look like inside the synagogue? What's going through your heart and mind as you listen to Jesus speak and observe all his actions? What do you hear and feel? What do you want to say to Jesus about it all? A reading from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news of him spread throughout the whole region. He taught in their synagogues and was praised by all. He came to Nazareth, where he had grown up, and went, according to his custom, into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read, and he was handed a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the passage where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, so the oppressed go free, and to proclaim a year acceptable to the Lord. Rolling up the scroll, he handed it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue looked intently at him. He said to them, Today this scripture passage is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke highly of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They also asked, Isn't this the son of Joseph? He said to them, Surely you will quote me this proverb, Physician, cure yourself, and say, Do hear in your native place the things that we heard were done in Capernaum. And he said, Amen, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own native place. Indeed, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the day of Elijah, when the sky was closed for three and a half years, and a severe famine spread over the entire land. It was to none of these that Elijah was sent, but only to a widow in Zarephath, in the land of Sidon. Again, there were many lepers in Israel during the time of Elisha the prophet, yet none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When the people in the synagogue heard this, they were filled with fury. They rose up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their towns had been built, to hurl him down headlong. But he passed through the midst of them 
and went away. The Gospel of the Lord. Lord, fill my life with you alone. Empty myself of all that's my own. Lord, fill my life with you alone. Jesus, keep my eyes on you. That's episode four of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Sister Julia Walsh. You can find Messy Jesus Business online at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon, as well as on our website at www.messyjesusbusiness.com. If you like what you heard, could you please share with your friends, subscribe wherever you find your podcasts, leave us a review, or support us on Patreon. Thanks. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. Thanks. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.